Join me, if you would, in 1 Peter, the first chapter. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of our God. There's someone drove by the church today. I saw the cars, noticed people walking in. They've asked themselves a question. Why are those people going to church? Among their answers, there's one that seems the most reasonable and I suspect is the most frequent answer they give to the question. Fear of hell. After all, why would anyone go to a house of worship and give up part of an already too short weekend? Fear of hell. That's why they'd go to church if they did. If they actually believe in a God who really did send people to hell, fear. Fear is a powerful motivation. <clears throat> fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Fear keeps you from playing frisbee on a busy highway. It often in my childhood kept me out of pastures where I knew there was a bull who had no sense of humor. Fear can be a good motivation. Fear can keep you from being injured or killed. And I'm never going to say for a moment that there isn't a place for it. I, I cannot forget, as I read this, Simon Peter's reaction to the shattering holiness of Jesus. And it shows up after Jesus has asked him to put out a little ways from the shore, and he's in the boat, and he's taught, and he said, fellows, let's go out. Let's go fishing. And their response is, Lord, uh, we fished all night and didn't take anything, but sure, carpenters know a lot about fishing. What's a professional fisherman know? But hear what he said, Luke's Gospel, 5th chapter, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Have you ever pondered this? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, folks, this tells you just a bit. I mean, Simon Peter gets it right a lot of times, and he gets it wrong nearly as many times. And I always find comfort in that because it reminds me 
that the Lord is gracious even in my failure, my misunderstanding. I got to tell you, folks, I, I, I kind of got caught off guard this morning. I didn't know there was a song, Oh, Come All You Unfaithful, brother. That, I mean, we sing, Come All You Faithful, and hey, amen. What? What's he doing? Then I look down and see Bob Coughlin, and I feel a little better about it because I know who wrote it. Not that I don't trust you, brother. But... And, 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 and you know how quick the mind starts working. And it's like, oh, gear shift, yes. We need to know that even when we've been unfaithful, in fact, we need that in some ways more. Right? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. We can do that again. Anytime. I, I, that was, hmm. And I, I look at that and I ponder Simon Peter. But this is the question then. Is this really the primary motivation for Christian living? Is it fear? Certainly we are to reverence God. There's truth in knowing the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs says that. But is fear of God, is it sufficient for faithfulness? If you're talking just trembling, craven fear. Simply put, I would say the answer is no. Now in verse 17, which we'll get to eventually, if you call on him as a father, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's there. But as we'll see, that's different than craven fear. We'll return to that text later on. And folks, there is something that ought to make us tremble as we consider ourselves. Chuck Colson described an interview in which TV journalist Mike Wallace, some of you remember Mike Wallace, he was a bit of a pit bull when it came to doing interviews, and he interviewed concentration camp survivor Yahil Dinur. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, D-I-N-U-R. Dinur had testified against Adolf Eichmann in the Nuremberg Trials. Wallace showed a film clip from 1961 trial of this Nazi architect of the Holocaust. Colson described the scene as Denora walked into the courtroom to come face to face with the man who had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. Denora began to sob uncontrollably, then fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pounded the gavel for order in the crowded courtroom. Was Denor overcome by hatred? Fear? Horrid memories? No. It was none of these. Rather, as Denor explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. Here's what he said then, Denur. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this. I am exactly like 
You see, my friend, it's the reality of sin in the heart of everyone that patterns and the evil and oppression in this world is created. Holiness means the pattern's broken. The sinner is transformed. See, we, we get this wrong over and over and over again. Even when we've heard it right and studied it right, learned it right, we get it wrong because we consistently want to make holiness the cause of our salvation rather than the result of our salvation. And every time you get that out of order, you mess it up. If holiness is the cause of your salvation, you are doomed. I'm doomed. We all doomed. But holiness is result. Gospel realities compel Christian holiness. Now, folks, you, you talk to those same people who don't attend church, never darken the door, and you ask them what it is that happens in a service in the preaching, and almost inevitably, you, you'll hear some description of what I would just call basically moralistic therapeutic deism. We've learned that term before, those terms for it. That's a fair terminology of what is taught in most churches in America today. Be good. Work at being good. If you're being good, be gooder. Right? Add to your goodness more goodness. Keep working at it. Labor, slave, work. You're not being good. You're in trouble. Be good. Be good. Be good. And it misses something essential here. And that is the realities of the gospel. And that's why it's important to always note the therefore. Now, here's the problem. If the gospel has never gripped you, if Christ has never met you, if the Spirit has never worked in you, gospel realities are boring to you, insulting to you. You can tolerate somebody up here exhorting you to be good. But how dare you tell me I'm so bad that somebody else has to do something for me? You're talking fairy tales. God becomes man. God walking on earth. God dying on a cross, the Son of God, for our sins. God raised him from the dead. Dead people don't get up. Now, believe me, folks, these are the same people who believe in UFOs and uh, other such phenomena. Therefore is a very fine word. A very Christian word. Before we dive into verses 13 to 16, don't lose sight of that long sentence that starts at verse 3, doesn't end to verse 12. I still think Peter and Paul had a lot of influence on each other. This, this long sentence looks a lot like the long sentence in Ephesians first chapter. And when you look back, you look, in fact, he's saying to these believers, look back. Therefore, therefore, therefore what? Because of these things. The, the main theme of those, three, those verses from 3 to 12, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why do we bless God? Why do we worship? Why do we praise Him? Because He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
And he has done this through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he's given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and that it is kept for us in heaven. And we are kept by the power of God. And though your faith is being tested, your faith is more precious than gold. Even though tried by fire can be proved genuine. And this faith that you've exercised in this Jesus is anchored in realities of the prophets prior to your knowing anything about prophets, you bunch of Gentiles who had no promises, who had no hope, who had no covenant. And yet a glorious Savior has come. And you are filled with joy unspeakable <laughs> and filled with glory. Now, preacher, you've not even gotten to the text yet. You're right. But you see, if you don't get that part, the next part just beats you to death without any hope. Telling helpless sinners to be good without the gospel is cruelty. So why are we to be good? Why does holiness matter? Well, first, what did he tell us? Hope fuels our future confidence. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The battle for holiness, this hope-fueled future confidence, this battle for holiness, is first waged in the mind. Twice now, he uses terminology, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Once again, this has echoes, does it not, of Romans, the 12th chapter. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is not especially easy. The language here is vigorous athletic action, very hard work. The King James translates it, girding the loins of the mind. Now that Sounds just peculiar. Until you think about how this was understood in the day. Folks wore robes. And if you were getting ready to run or to work real hard to free up your legs, you'd reach behind and grab the back of that garment and you'd lift it up between your legs and you'd stuff it in your belt to get it out of your way. It was getting prepared for vigorous action. Be sober-minded. Jesus will say it this way, stay dressed for action, keeping your lamps burning, Luke 12. Sobriety, both literal and figurative, is to mark the Christian life. Preparing the mind for action includes sobriety. Neither physically intoxicated nor spiritually intoxicated. You see, it's easy for Christians to be carried away with this, that, or the next enthusiasm. I'm always intrigued by the latest thing to catch Christians' minds and attention. Ooh, look at this. Isn't this cool? Let's look at this. Oh, preacher, that. We ought to be doing that. That looks so good. Let's do that. Oh, this guy. Did you hear what he said? 
Most of the time I haven't. The people I listen, listen to the most tend to be dead. I've rarely had a dead man disappoint me. None of them have gotten up and done anything scandalous. We need to have a sobriety. Christian, there's good reason not to go charging after the latest evangelical fads. And my brothers and sisters, I have lived long enough to see them over and over and over and over again. And whether they show up in terms of Christian living, oh, here's the secret. I remember one time the secret to evangelism and to success in the Christian life was we needed to pray down the demonic power over a given city or a given region. You're going to break down strongholds. That was a big deal back in the late 80s. And uh, I remember another one said, here's how you get away from ever sinning again. Okay? Every time you're tempted to sin, pray. Pray for the success of the gospel. Okay? Yeah? But boy, you're sure counting on a lot from me in the midst of temptation. That's how you do spiritual warfare. If every time you're tempted, it leads you to pray for the success of the kingdom, then the enemy will leave you alone. It, it, it shows up in so many ways, my brothers and sisters. We are to have a sobriety of mind and holiness begins with a thought process. This is why this is so important. You're to think about these things. Consider. Don't ever let anybody tell you, well, you're using your head too much. I would contend it's actually the opposite problem. You're not using it rightly. If the text drives us. If God speaks to us, if the revelation from our God is spoken to us in terms which we can understand, it is not, not the essence of our belief in revelation. That God doesn't speak in mystery. He doesn't speak in ways that we're scratching our heads. He actually comes and uses words that mean things to us and identify with reality as he tells us reality is, and that thinking Christianly is thinking God's thoughts after him. I'm surprised somebody didn't get Pentecostal at that point. My friend, until you grasp the glory of the gospel, you will never lay hold of the essential or driving holiness in your life until that hope grips you. John Owen's epitaph read partly this way, while on the road to heaven his elevated mind almost comprehended its full glories and joys. The believer at his best, when he knows he isn't just living for now, but for eternity, that's when he lives his best. He has a future hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what Peter's telling you there? 
you ought to joyfully set your hope on the second coming and appearing before Christ. Now here's my question, Christian. Do you look to that day with joy or dread? If you're looking to it with dread, I will contend that you're not thinking of it right. Well, I'm a mess, and everybody's going to know how big a mess I am, like the Lord doesn't already know. Well, then everybody will know. Everybody suspects anyway. And consider this, my friend. If the audience around us are other human beings, they either have known the joy of being justified fully by what Christ has done and knowing that their sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb and they get it, or they are doomed forever trying to earn their way or ignoring God or hating God, whatever terminology you want to use, who cares what they think? They're under condemnation. And the distinction between you and them is not that you were brighter, smarter, got better at it. The distinction is the Son of God and the grace revealed to you. And that grace does not end at the second coming. That grace extends throughout all eternity. Now folks, that's hope-fueled holiness. We look forward. Live for heaven, said C.S. Lewis, and you get earth thrown in. Live for the earth and you get neither. Mm. All right? Hope fuels holiness, but also, here's the other part, adoption changes your innate desire. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, literally as children of obedience... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are called obedient children. Not called to be. Literally, he calls us as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Children of obedience. We once were, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, sons of disobedience. Now we are children of obedience. Obedience to the Lord marks his children. Him adopting us, him granting us the new birth, he changes our very nature. Obedience to the Lord marks us as His children, and thus it implies, in fact, I would say it declares, it is possible to obey. The old way is still with you. But if you live the old life, you do it ignorantly. And what does he say there? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what did that look like? Isn't it fun to be called ignorant? But the text makes that pretty clear, does it not? Well, we were ignorant about God. His ways, His laws, His majesty, His attributes. We're ignorant of ourselves, our sinfulness, our selfishness, our soul-destroying wickedness. We were ignorant of the gospel, redemption, justification, regeneration, faith, sanctification, glorification. None of those things we knew. But my friends, because we have been changed, now made children of obedience. This marks us. Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. My friends, diligence in new obedience flows from faith and a sense of spiritual privilege, especially of adoption. We are the children of God. All right. Hope fuels holiness. We look forward to the final day. Adoption, and I'd say with that, regeneration, changes our very nature, our inner desires. This is why I've said before, friend, if I preach about holiness and you yawn, if you hear the commands of the Lord and you shrug, please be careful. You may not know Jesus at all. I don't mean, please hear me. I'm not saying that a Christian doesn't mess up, but a Christian wants to be better than they are. I heard another brother say this, and I will say this, I believe, to my dying day. I've never met a Christian who didn't want to be better than they were. If that's not true, something's wrong. Seriously, profoundly wrong. Finally, Hope and adoption cause change in us, but this does as well. God's holiness demands our holiness. And this is really the pivot from the whole thing of being called children of obedience. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter can't think about this without thinking about the fact being a child of God means you reflect who God is and what is God, who is God like. God is holy. Be holy as I am holy. So what is holiness? There are basically two elements to holiness. Holiness means two things. Maybe not necessarily at the same time, but it can. One thing holiness means is this, separated to God. That's why in the Old Testament, the articles, the furnishings of the temple or the tabernacle could be called holy. Now, tables and chairs, candelabras and veils and altars, none of those things have moral qualities. Right? They're not good or bad in terms of morality. They are things. And so in that sense, they are holy to the Lord because they are cut off and set apart to Him. Second part of holiness is moral purity. And moral purity in the eyes of the Lord is reflecting the holiness of our God. We live differently because we're His and He is different completely, to quote one theologian, other. He is beyond our comprehension in this. Holiness is his crowning attribute. He is holy in his justice. He is holy in his sovereignty. His grace is holy grace. His mercy is holy mercy. Every aspect of his being is holy. 
It is not without cause, I believe, and purpose that both the Old and New Testaments reflect this scene. Isaiah 6, one called to another the seraphim and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or in Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the final motivation given for holiness. This is wonderful, awesome, and powerfully encouraging in this. B.B. Warfield, the Princeton theologian, said, Sinful man cannot be incited to holy activity by the sight of holiness. It begets no longing in his heart except the longing to hide himself away from it. When Adam sinned, he no longer wished to meet God in the garden. The very fact of the proposal of God to show us his holiness as an incitement to holiness means something then of infinite importance to our souls. It means we are no longer averse to all that's good, no longer God's enemies, but His friends. Y'all just don't have any Pentecostal in you at all, do you? (laughs) Do you hear what's said here? You, in yourself, when confronted by the holiness of God, find that revolting, frightening, and you want to run away from it. And the only reason that that doesn't happen now is you've had a dramatic change in your life, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. He has changed you. Oh, it may make you tremble. Who can read R.C. Sproul's description or listen to him? Yeah, I know some of y'all doing that book. Who can listen to that description and not have an echo in your own heart of how trembling and awe-inspiring it is to consider the thrice holy God. But oh my friend, for the Christian, we are drawn to Him and His holiness. We would live lives different. Not separated in some hypocritical, pharisaical way so we feel superior, but to live truly as we are called to live before Him. And it looks different than anything else in the whole wide world. It's all-encompassing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Are you holy in all you do? Is your life separated to God? Is your job separated to God? Is your home or your hobbies? Does separation to God, the pursuit of moral excellency, mark every area of your life? This isn't as simple as some want to make it. It's more than a list of rules. It's more than merely erecting a pharisaical fence around the New Testament. I'm always intrigued by peace. Well, I'm not going to do that. I know the text doesn't say anything about it, but I'm not going to do that because if you do that, you might go there and say, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to add something. Well, bless you. And if that's what you have to do in your own mind and heart, go ahead. 
But my friend, if I ignore your fence, that doesn't mean I'm not holy. It just means I ignored your fence. Mm. See, that's what gets us in trouble. We start being judgy toward other people who violate our fences. Not what the text says. My fence. It's not about drinking, it's not about smoking, it's not about movies, it's not about TV, it's not about sending your kid to public school. There are lost people who don't smoke, don't drink, don't go to movies, don't watch TV, and they don't send their kids to public school, but that doesn't mean they're saved. Holiness, while it affects what you do, is not merely moral reconstruction, it affects all of life. It is a change in our basic nature, our faith in God, our confidence in His grace, and our lives based on those realities. So my question to you, my friend, is are you holy? Are you moving the right direction? Stumble? Sure. Struggle? Mm-hmm. Listen to these words of Lewis once again. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to something on the inside of some door we've always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and the healing of that old ache. Did you lay hold of that? You see, my friend, you and I are called to holiness now Partially as being acclimated to holiness when we get home. That's why I'm puzzled about folks who don't love the Word of God, don't love the people of God, don't love the church of God, have no interest in worship, but I'm a Christian. I, I want to say, do you have any idea how bored you're going to be in heaven? What makes you think that you even have a place there. Hmm? But you see, holiness, it's got a past anchor. And the past anchor, at least according to Paul, and even Peter here, goes all the way back into eternity when God the Father set His love on you. And then it's got an anchor in time. And that anchor is 2,000 years ago. The cross. And an empty tomb. And the Savior ascended who now reigns on high. This holiness has a future referent. One day before His throne. He's the one to whom we answer. Right? And that doesn't fill us with dread because the past anchor, (laughs) 
we've held on to him. And we trust in the one who is now our intercessor in heaven. Folks, understand, when you're reading the text about Jesus being our intercessor, I don't think it's trying to give you the idea that the Father's sitting there saying, oh, look what they did, look what they did. Why should I love them anymore? Look what Shivers did. He screwed up again. I don't think that's how that works. You know how he's our intercessor? He's there. And the one who sits at the right hand of the Father bears in his glorified, resurrected body the marks of his crucifixion and his suffering, and he is raised immortal, a man, the God-man, Nonetheless, man is at the right hand of all glory. Yeah. And we're seated with him. That's what the scripture says. And so now I live with an anchor at both ends, if you will. <laughs> and even an anchor in heaven. And so the call, Christian, be holy, for I'm holy. And when you fall, you stumble. Remember these words, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Remember, boast in the Lord.